You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Beth Kander. Beth is a fantastic playwright and actor. We've known each other since I was six. We were both home educated in rural Michigan. Her lovely mom directed us all in Shakespeare plays growing up, and I'm just as proud to call her one of my best friends now as I was then. Her thoughtfulness as an artist is an asset to any room she's in, and I'm thrilled to get her input for the podcast. Beth's based in Chicago these days, so this conversation was recorded over Skype. I hope you enjoy the 38th episode of The Compass. I'm just going to dive in and ask, uh, what is the dark side for you as an artist? And what do you try to do to avoid going to that? I think there's a couple of triggers and there's a couple of, yeah, there's a couple of ways that the uh, dark side sort of manifests for me. One is something that um, we were talking about as we got ready for this. (laughs) The fact that I'm not from the New York part of your life. Mm -hmm. Uh, We go way, way back. But really, until moving to Chicago two years ago, I'd never been in any sort of scene. And so as an artist, dark side-wise, one moment I can point to last year is when this big series of blogs and conversations around plonies came out. What's that? A plony. (laughs) I don't even know. A plony um, is playwright outside New York. Oh. And it was this whole narrative and counter-narrative about how you will never be taken seriously as a playwright. You'll never really make it as a playwright unless you go to New York. It's like, you know, look at all of the history of Tonys and Pulitzers, and Hmm. it's so skewed to New York. If you don't put in the time there, you're never going to make it. Um, And, you know, we had, when this came out, fairly recently located to Chicago, which is already a huge city move for us, and there is a vibrant, wonderful theater scene here. But it was like, ah, oh, there's that reminder again that, like, if I was really being serious about this, if I really wanted to be a real playwright and not a phony. <laughs> it <laughs> just doesn't like, sound has okay. to rhyme with phony. Let's make it even worse. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that, that place has a lot to do with success or the perception of success um, sometimes put me in, puts me into a little bit of a dark side funk. I mean... For 12 years, I was in Mississippi, and I loved the artistic community there. I also struggled a lot with the politics and other things there, Mm -hmm. Um, and it was good for my growth as an artist, but it was also a plateau 
after a while. And when you feel like where I am, how much farther can I go from here? You know, it forces a lot of tough questions. Right. Um, and I guess my other big dark side trigger is just my own practicality and life choices that like right now I'm pursuing an MFA in creative writing, but that took me until I was in my early thirties to start. I have a master's degree in nonprofit management and social work. Right. I've always had a day job. Um, I've always been staying up late to write and dedicating spare time to writing. Um, and sometimes when I watch other people leap forward with successes, I wonder like, could I, could I already be there? if I'd started investing earlier Mm -hmm. in trusting my artistic inclinations. So those, those are a couple of them. That and just, you know, rejection in general. Oh my God. (laughs) The nice thing about the writer side as opposed to actor side is I usually get it in private, like in email or a letter. (laughs) I don't have to go to auditions anymore. I mean, it's nice that they notify you though. (laughs) That's the thing with auditions is they just leave you. You're like, oh, I guess three weeks later, I guess, yep, I guess that was a rejection. Yeah, that does, that (laughs) actually, that happened today. I thought I would get an email notification and instead I read an article about, I won't say what it was, but uh, something, Uh a writing position that I applied for, uh, an article about the people who got it. You're like, okay. <laughs> Before hearing it back that I was not among them. <laughs> totally. So what are some of the things that you try to do to take yourself out of that space when you feel yourself sinking into it? Um, rejection's an easy one to start with because I've started a new um, two-for-one rule. <laughs> so every time that I get one rejection, I have to send out two more submissions that's amazing. Um, so yeah, like a couple weeks ago when I got five rejections in a week, I was like, whew, all right, I got to find time to send out 10. At least that, that <laughs> gives you something else like very specific to focus on. Yep. Well, and you know, the, the cliche, which actors get tired of hearing and writers get tired of hearing, and I'm sure dancers and everyone else is, you know, most of the work is showing up. Yeah. But when you show up and then you don't get cast or your script doesn't get picked, it doesn't feel like that's where most of the work is. Um, but it's reminding yourself that there is some truth to that. If when one door shuts, you're like, all right, I'm going to go knock on two more. It's something concrete to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that's one. And, you know, just connecting with other artists and non-artist friends, (laughs) trying to find where the light spaces are, even when I'm feeling a little bit downtrodden or disconnected from, making progress on what really is important to me artistically not to isolate yourself yeah which writers I think have a real tendency to do and that definitely used to be me I'd be like all right well I'll just double down on coffee shop time and I'm clearly not spending enough time at the computer but that's almost never true I do a lot of writing (laughs) um and you know you're you're only as good a storyteller as you are a human being who's observing mm-hmm. other human beings and catching more stories. So I do think that, especially for those of us who are artists but introverts, it's important to push ourselves to also connect. Like, retreat when you need to, but don't just retreat. Yeah, for sure. Can you tell me a little bit about how you were talking about how you it took you a while to choose to focus on writing? Because that's so smart in one way. I understand how you can perceive it as maybe of not 
throwing yourself into it right away. But was were you always writing like through college and everything, or did you did did you like leave it on the side for a while and then come back to it later, even when you were studying social work and all of that? I was always writing. I yeah. mean, really, from from high school on, I was always writing. Uh, they didn't have a creative writing major where I went to undergrad at Brandeis, but I did participate in the creative writing track mm-hmm. and then did more practical stuff for majors. And I thought about applying for MFA programs. But I didn't. Um, But I never stopped writing. There was never a hiatus from writing. There were definitely times that I was not as good about submitting or connecting with theaters on the playwriting side or reaching out um, to literary agents on the novel writing side. Um, But I've definitely always been writing. I think as far as when I decided to focus on it and give myself permission that it was worth moving more to center stage as opposed to always in the wings um had a lot to do with turning 30 yeah there was just a lot of stock taking that I did when I turned 30 and I was like what do I want my legacy to be I mean it sounds so cheesy but you know what do I want to be remembered for x y and z that I'm doing which is good work you know I've worked with a lot of great nonprofits and I don't think that I threw away my twenties by being a productive member of society. <laughs> um, but I, I just, I needed to double down on what has always been where my heart is. So yeah, a lot of it was just age and stage and being like, all right, the time is now. <laughs> the time is now. How has the move to Chicago been? I think it was really important um, in a lot of ways. Um, So my husband is an actor, and part Mm -hmm. of why we moved here is because although we both had and have day jobs, Mm -hmm. on both the day job and the artistic front, um, we knew that we sort of had reached where we were going to reach, at least for the next several years, um, in Jackson, Mississippi. So it was a hard decision, because we love our community there. We were on the board of a theater, um, Fondren Theater Workshop, that's just comprised of really inspiring, wonderful people, um, and getting to be part of making sure that art happens in a place where it might not, if you're not there to help make it happen, Uh was a big part of our artistic identity. Um, but we started looking for, all right, well, where else, (laughs) where else might be better opportunity wise for us? And I think Chicago has been a good, a good move for both of us. Uh, even though it's very intimidating. It's intimidating to go from being big fish in a small pond, even if you know the opportunities are limited and you need a bigger uh-huh. swimming pool, <laughs> to feeling for the first several months that we were here, like minnows in the ocean. You know, you right. go from like five community theaters where you know everyone and one professional theater in town to 200 some storefront theaters and several big equity houses and just a really active, vibrant scene where everyone else has been there for longer than you have and they all already know each other and you have to start hustling and scrapping. And uh, it's exciting, but it's definitely intimidating. Um, But two years in, I think it's a really permeable city. I think Chicago is one of those places where if you show up and you support other people's work and you apply for fellowships and you introduce yourself around we now can't go to a show without running into people that we know. (laughs) It's welcoming. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Have you found that the change of location influences your writing a lot? 
That's a great question. I only just started noticing that it does. <laughs> uh, the first big script that I finished writing uh, when I was up here was set in Mississippi. Right. And I think I was only really ready to write it once I was out of Mississippi. It's about gun control, which is a very polarizing issue. Yes, nationwide, but let me tell you what. <laughs> Mississippi. <laughs> And even though it's a play that tries to make room um, for different voices and not demonize gun owners or come across as a real agenda play so much as an exploration of a conversation that this country needs to be having Mm -hmm. um, through the lens of characters of various perspectives that hopefully fall in love with all of them, uh, I felt like I needed a little distance before I could write that play and put it in Mississippi. And then once I got that one off my chest... I still have plays uh, and stories that I set in the South. I mean, I have a lot of connections to those Southern roots there. That's so but, interesting to me, because since you're not from there yourself. And I know you devoted so many years. Well, I lived there but longer it, technically than I lived in any other place. You just got to intersect with me for like my entire Holly, Michigan existence. <laughs> since I met you like week one. And I have family in Mobile, Alabama, yeah. and throughout the South. So there's always sort of a connection. That's interesting. But I think also because where we lived in Michigan, I mean, even more so than where you lived in Michigan, it was so rural. I didn't mm-hmm. grow up with, like, a cohort of kids that were my neighbors. Also, as you know, we didn't, like, go to school and have school pride. Yep. We <laughs> grew up there. So, yeah, I don't, I don't feel nearly as connected Although certainly my identity is shaped by like the small town Midwest. Uh, I have places that I can go and stay and people that I can see um, throughout Mississippi and the South. And like my folks are still in Michigan Mm -hmm. and I have some other family members, but like you, all of my other friends who are in Michigan are mostly not there. I know. Do you still have a lot of friends who are in Michigan? No. Your parents. My, my parents holding down the fort. They're holding <laughs> down the, the fort. Meg's mom, but that's about it. A few other. Yeah, but Meg's in few, Chicago. A few so other I childhood. I see Meg's mom more in Chicago visiting Meg. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But I do think, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this too. I want to I turn this question around back mm. on you. Um, being in a big city, how important do you think it is to your artistic? identity and process to have small town roots and to have a perspective that's totally different from what you've now been living for a decade? I don't know. I mean, it is still important to me, but it it does seem very far in the past because this is, this summer is 11 years in New York for me. I did go to college in another rural place, but, um, yeah, it has taken over. But then when I think about when I think about being in nature, when I think about connecting with that part of myself or like the innocence of the childhood that we had, like I'm sure I still draw on those things as an artist, but I'm addicted. I'm addicted to being around a lot of people and a diver- a really diverse group of people and the constant buzz of a city. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think you can go back. I think it's hard. It is. But I don't know. I think even more so than what what you said. I think I I feel in you as a friend who's known you for a long time <laughs> and I feel in me that even once you become 
addicted to that bigger scene and identify more with a different place. Just the fact that you can fathom having been elsewhere. Yeah. It's something that I found that, you know, people who are lifelong city people yeah. will just be blown away by some of the themes or, right. uh, of plays or notions in politics. Like, you know, how could people even think that? And I feel like character-wise, living for a long time in small towns or in the Deep South, I do understand why people feel very differently than I do about things. I do have a perspective that's different than if I'd always been in you know, a cosmopolitan, mostly progressive, diverse place. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an interesting kind of empathy to have as an artist. Yeah. How do you structure your life as a freelancer with your day job stuff and finding time to write and this MFA program? <laughs> What's your approach? I know you, I know you have a lot of systems. I do. I'm a big, I'm a big list maker. If it doesn't go down on paper, it's probably not happening. When I shifted from full-time at an office to a more freelance lifestyle, um, I knew that I would need both for productivity on the work work front, but also for making sure that I held myself accountable on the writing front, um, that I would need some parameters so Fridays are my writing days where mm-hmm. I have hired myself as my client and <laughs> I, I bill myself out. And, you know, if, if there's another big project going on somewhere, I can't say that I always hold it so sacred as I would like, but it's pretty sacred that from like eight to five on Fridays, I make myself sit in front of the computer at a coffee shop most of the time and write on my projects. Mm-hmm. Um, when I took on the MFA program, I decided that, you know, MFA assignments could also count as my projects. <laughs> um, and I do a lot of double counting. Like I took a playwriting <laughs> class last semester. So if there was a call for submissions that sort of aligned with the uh, requirements of an assignment, I'd be like, great, <laughs> this play is going to serve me in three different ways. This short story is going to get submitted two places to meet my rejection that I just got, and it will be my uh, homework for the week. Right. Um, but yeah, Fridays are my writing days, and then I cram it in wherever else I can. Um, the big... X factors, you know, in my life right now that I'll have to figure out <laughs> how it changes everything is that um, we'll be having our first kid this month. Oh and like gosh. that, I-, I won't say it's sending me to a dark place because yay, baby, really exciting. <laughs> it's going to be great. Um, but it is definitely frequently sending me to a contemplative place of, all right, I've already been maintaining this really tenuous balance of working full-time, pursuing this degree, and still trying to be productive on my independent writing front, when you have a tiny person that's entirely dependent on you, uh-huh. <laughs> that's going to that's gonna change some things. Are you giving yourself a quote-unquote maternity leave? I am. Okay, I'll good. be taking a full eight weeks of this is leave, this is figuring out what our new family (laughs) looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, Danny will get to be there for the first week to two weeks of that, so at least that's something. Yeah. Um, Sadly, we live in a nation where we don't get a lot more. I feel very privileged even that I can 
get you know two months to try to figure this out but yeah I'm really saying a lot of prayers for like a calm sleepy baby that can like be with me at table reads because I have some shows going into production and I have a theater festival to be at in October and I'm planning to haul this baby (laughs) to these events well it's gonna be your baby so I'm sure it will adapt I hope so. Yeah, I'm we're sure. we're just going to cram arts down this kid's throat really early <laughs> on. They'll probably rebel by like wanting to be, you know, an engineer or some sort of Republican think tank person. Well, hopefully the first and not the latter. <laughs> Can I ask you about making the decision to become parents as artists and like how that decision was complicated or eased by your life as artists and freelancers because I'm I'm curious (laughs) and I'm learning from you as we speak see how I do with it um I mean you know we we definitely put it off longer than a lot of folks that we know um I will be 35 at the end of this year Mm -hmm. maybe 40 so we're not like super young parents um I feel like that's normal for a lot of artists though go ahead and give this thing a try I mean other age issues aside was like when we stopped and thought about the end of our lives we couldn't at the end of our lives imagine not having been parents and shared this experience and then time just like backing it up from there was like oh well that means we should probably (laughs) soon get this on the radar um and I think there are some things that especially for me as a freelancer uh I think are going to be a little bit easier, hopefully. I don't want to be naive about that, but I do have a little bit more flexibility. I can look at, you know, some in-home assistance options even before we have to, like, reach out to daycare and see how that balance can work. And, of course, there is the super snarky, not politically correct, like, most of the other people we know who have put off having kids are also sort of like us artsy progressive types who have other creative endeavors that it was really important to them to pursue and if a few of us don't start having kids then like we're leaving the world to 19 kids and counting it is your duty it is your duty to have children right? it, is, it is my duty to raise this arts infused kid who thinks <laughs> normal to be dragged at three months old to a theater festival in Oregon like why wouldn't you do that um, but I mean, we did, we seriously talked about that. And then of course, in the same breath about, but, you know, with depleting resources and the world that we're living in, is it even responsible to have a kid? Like, right. there's, I think when you're an overthinker, which most artists that I know are those big, big decisions, like having kids, it's really easy to overthink and overthink and overthink. Well, I'm so excited for you guys. Thanks. So soon. It's so soon. Just for the listeners who don't know, can you talk a little bit about the kind of stuff you do for your day job as a freelancer? Sure. So my my first master's degree is in social work and specifically nonprofit management. So I worked full-time in the nonprofit world for several years after finishing that degree. And then... I like to say that I accidentally wound up working in advertising. (laughs) I was recruited by a film production company um, and was a copywriter on their staff, and then they merged with an advertising agency. So I also spent about five years um, working first as a copywriter and then as a social media director and community outreach liaison for this 
multimedia or advertising and film production commercial warehouse sort of place, um, which was great. And I learned a whole lot. And so now the freelancing that I'm able to do, I still primarily work doing grant writing and communications management for um, a nonprofit that I have a really long relationship with. Um, but I'm also able to do communication strategy and social media recommendations and sort of infuse a little bit of what I learned from immersion in that world, which I think a lot of nonprofits and arts organizations need. Um, mm. In fact, to the point that, you know, I'm, I'm telling your listeners on the podcast, but I'm often hesitant to mention at cast parties or at events for theaters and artist types that by day I do grant writing because immediately people's eyes light up and they're like, oh, we need someone to write a grant. <laughs> I know, but you probably don't have any budget. That's how I make I my so money. I'm so time right now. Right, right. Well, that's great that it's still like nonprofits are still in a world that you care about that I'm sure you, that you care about the issues that they're addressing and it still involves writing in some form and <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. I do try to tell a good story with my yeah. grants. I've also been a grant reader for a lot of stuff. And I do think there's my, my unsolicited grant writing advice is yeah. Think of it as storytelling. Remember it's humans that are yeah. reading your proposals. And you've been able to kind of keep some of those clients with your move, right? Yes. That's yeah. great. Which also gives me an excuse to go fairly frequently back to Mississippi which is nice, and I do think keeps me connected, not just with the people, but with a different place, a different perspective, yeah. and as frustrating as other perspectives can sometimes be, I think it's really valuable, and I think it pushes you as an artist if you have to acknowledge and incorporate characters and notions that aren't your own and wrestle with those. I think it makes you ultimately tell more honest stories. Yeah. What has your experience been with kind of the emerging writer trap? Because <laughs> I feel like it's it's a label that the current uh, the current environment for playwrights people tend to like put it on playwrights for a long time. Like you could be an emerging writer for twenty years mm-hmm. with like yeah. the, the workshop cycles and the festival cycles. People don't want to like take a chance on a writer and give them a full production. They want to have the workshop and the the reading or whatever. Um, yeah. What has your experience been with that? Yeah. The emerging writer. I do often like wonder <laughs> when do we stop emerging? Yeah. I've emerged when here. When have you arrived as a writer? And I, I still don't know. Uh, I'm very fortunate, but I do feel like I'm starting to get a little traction. I think it will still probably be another five or 10 years um, that I'll be referred to as a new playwright. And when I can leverage that for good opportunities, great. Um, and it's funny, you get emerging or new attached, but people don't really say, oh, by established playwright Sarah Rule. You're right. Just a, you know, Sarah Rule when you're Sarah Rule. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, like you said, I think there's a lot of fear around taking risk around a name that isn't known. And that's very similar for a lot of artists is that people assume that the draw for the audience is a name, which to an extent is true. But I think that 
crossing the bridge from new and emerging and being able to advocate more and say, well, actually, this place been workshopped three times, so I'm <laughs> writing to see if we could have a conversation about doing some sort of actual production. Right. And it might mean that you have to go to a smaller house. It might mean that you have to keep asking for a while. And so that really does put the pressure on you that if you want to make the move from emerging to established, you got to get produced. And yeah. I think one way you do that is picking a company that you work with for a while that they'll be invested in the script that they helped you develop and workshop. And mm -hmm. when it gets to a point that maybe others are interested, they want to be the one who gets to do your premiere. And that's what's happening with the bottle tree, right? That's exactly what happened with the bottle tree. Um, stage left in Chicago has been wonderful. I was super lucky to get a downstage left residency shortly after I moved here and workshop the bottle tree through that. It was then um, selected for Leap Fest, which is their like summer intensive of public readings and um, uh, further evolution of a play. And so that was last July. Mm -hmm. And now a little over a year later, this October, I'm getting a full production of the bottle tree with stage left. And I know you just got asked back to be part of the Ashland New Play Festival in Oregon. Yeah, that must be I was exciting. totally floored. That I That's get to really go a exciting. Year in a row. You applied again, or did they just ask you to come back? No, I I submitted again. Um, you have to go through their anonymous submission process. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and the first year, last year, um, that I was one of the Ashland winners, they had 572 submissions that oh came gosh. down to the four of us who wound up in Ashland. So they put a cap this year. Um, they only accepted the first 400 qualifying scripts that, you know, met all the requirements and were in by the deadline. And after 400, I mean, they wound up closing it off, I think, a month before the official deadline because they were already over oh, wow. their quota. Um, but, yeah, it was an anonymous process until the end again. So I was very surprised. It was a very different script. Mm -hmm. um, hazardous materials is not the bottle tree. Okay. <laughs> but I, I, on so many levels, it was so well-timed to get that news and to know that that and the bottle tree are on the horizon for fairly soon after the kid arrives. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I won't be able to sit on my laurels. I like that there's already something on the calendar that even if I'm tired, even if I'm wondering how I'm going to balance it all, like, I've committed. I'm yeah. going to Ashland. I'm having this show go up. I'm going to help promote it. Um, <laughs> well, also any danger of feeling like you're stuck in your house, you're stuck, you know, in a very small world, important world, but very small world of taking care of this tiny human. Exactly. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of equally afraid of being driven crazy by that or by totally loving it. Yeah. Because what does it do to you if you're like, but all I want to do is snuggle this tiny baby. Yeah. And so it's yeah, a having a strange world <laughs> we women live in. Um, well, that might be a good transition to ask you. I mean, I, I, I have a lot of insight into it because your family basically adopted me when I was a child. <laughs> but I would like to hear what you have to say about um, how your family supports your life as an artist. I almost feel like I shouldn't say. How I mean, I want to have your supports... mom on the podcast at some point, so <laughs> look forward to that, listeners. I almost but... feel like I shouldn't say because I'm so, so fortunate 
um, the artists and the non-artists in my family have so much appreciation, not just for the arts, but just for humanity yeah. in a way that I don't think every family has. And I think it really took until I was an adult to realize, um, you know, not every family does like mine did with you adopt yeah. a bunch of other kids and have, you know, I got to have as my biological parents, the mom and dad who are called mom and dad by a slew of other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I thought it was the norm that if someone got kicked out of their house, they would come to your house. I'm not <laughs> sure how I thought that worked. Cause clearly I knew that there were houses that people got kicked out of. <laughs> um, but to always have the open door, even if we had a really small house, there was somehow always room for anyone who needed to come over at any time. Mm -hmm. um, that definitely translates into their support of me as an artist and of all of my siblings, some of whom are also still pursuing art, some of whom aren't, there never felt like there was judgment on either side of that choice. If I decided to totally walk away from theater or writing, I don't think that my, I think my parents would have been surprised, but I don't think that they would have been disappointed. Right. Um, and meanwhile, the, the balance that I've managed to strike and what I'm trying to do more, I mean, anything I go back to them with, they're like, we love you. We're so proud of you. Tell us more. <laughs> it's, it's just very, very, very fortunate. Yeah. I just get too sappy talking about my family, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what else I want to say about that. Um, <laughs> Both be crying. That's like a whole other, a whole yeah. other podcast, and that's why I need to get your mom to. Yeah, how has it been for you and Danny to be married to another artist? It's funny. Shortly before Danny and I started dating, I was once again in one of those like, "Oh, artists should never date other artists' <laughs> modes," for a lot of reasons. Um, I don't know what you're talking too, about. It's like simple scheduling. Like if you're not in the same show, you might not ever see each other. And that's a huge pain in the butt. Um, but honestly, I can't, I can't imagine partnering with someone who doesn't get that it's important to me to create. Um, I, I can't imagine spending my life with someone who was even, even if supportive and cheerleading didn't also get what it's like to feel the pain of rejection and really be able to sit there and hold your hand and be like, yep, I know. And that I'm able to do that for him as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I endorse it. I, <laughs> I endorse the artists marrying artists thing. Um, I do think it's helpful that although we both write and act at this point, he identifies a lot more as an actor than a writer. I identify a lot more as a writer than an actor. Um, so it keeps the conversations interesting. It keeps the projects different. Yeah. Um, but he's also my best first reader. Uh, he actually got to be in an early reading of The Bottle Tree as a 17-year-old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not the part exactly that was written for him, but uh, <laughs> one of the perks of having a talented partner is you can be like, hey, I'm going to show yeah. up and ask if they'll do this script, and I can also help them yeah. to connect with another talented reader if they need one. Totally. Is there anything that you're really proud of from the last couple of years that you want to tell me about? Sorry. Like something you've learned or something that maybe isn't obvious? Yeah, I might need to think about that one it's a for tricky. A it's a tricky question. Um, 
I think it's something that sounds really small, but is really large, uh, is that I refer to myself as a writer, which that was also a, at some point after crossing the 30 threshold, <laughs> I really wanted to give myself permission to do. And that was sort of a two-step process because first I gave myself permission to refer to myself as a writer. And then about two years later, it stopped feeling like I was lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and now I have other people introduce me as a writer or as a playwright because that's how they know me here because I've been putting myself out there so much more the last couple of years. And, and I mean, it is a lot about the work. If you have a lot of work out there and you're not just saying I'm a writer, but you're introduced as such at the talk back for your reading, mm -hmm. um, that starts to convey it a lot more, but you do have to start with trusting yourself. And I think, I don't know. I, I don't, what do you think? I think writers are pretty bad about that relative to other artists. I think an actor will pretty early on say, yeah, I'm an actor and I show up and I audition and there's almost more to show for that. Up until you have enough of a body of work as a writer that you are putting it out there. Hmm. It's just you and your computer screen. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like for actors, there's maybe more of a cliche about people saying they're actors who maybe aren't serious about it, who haven't put in the time, who there's a thing like where people might scoff at you being like, oh, sure, <laughs> you're an actor. That's so funny because I totally feel that about writers. And yeah, it sounds so mean it's to say, similar this, then. You know, in this day and age, everyone has a blog, everyone has a book, yeah. or a book idea, like anyone can be a writer. Uh-huh. I'm like, man, how's, okay, so how do you get the actual credibility? So yeah. Exactly. I guess it's the same. I, it's probably <laughs> the same for all artists. I don't know. And I don't want to stifle anyone's creativity. Like, if you want to write, if you want to act, if you want to create, great. But like, then what's the line between those of us that are... Well, and that's... That's the tricky thing is, and something that I'm exploring with this podcast is like, how can you create a creative life for yourself that you feel confident in and that you're happy with and that you feel successful in despite society's definition of what success is, or even if you're not necessarily at that moment making your entire living from your work? Because a lot of people judge you for that. If they're like, well, you're not paying your bills with that, so you're not an actor, you're not a writer, um, how can you be healthy about that and not let that undermine your own definition of success? Yeah, and it's tough, because I think there's inevitable gaps for almost all of us. Even if you're on a roll for a while, then it's going to be, you're not cast in anything for a while, or all you're getting is rejections, yeah. and you don't have a next project when someone asks you, all right, so what's going on? What do you have next? And you're like, well, that's why I'm I think, working on stuff. That's why I think there is a freedom and a really beautiful thing in what you were building in Jackson and that it was not necessarily the pressure of being in a huge market, you know, that you could contribute to the artistic life of the city and not necessarily have the pressure of trying to make it your entire living because that wasn't really the venue for that. Right, it was never going to pay my bills, but if I yeah. ever wanted to be in a show or have a show produced, I could make that happen. Yeah. Are there any, like, concrete things that you reach for? Sorry, my neighbor's upstairs. The little boys are running around. <laughs> if, I don't know if you can hear it, but I can hear it. 
Uh, I can't. So okay. Hopefully that's good. <laughs> uh, are there like concrete things that you turn to again and again? Like if you're having a day where you really feel uninspired and you need to bring yourself out of it, like books that you reread or music that you listen to or things that you do as like a touchstone. Oh man. I mean, I can name several and they're all going to sound so cliche. Do it. Um, like for the last year, definitely musically, it's been the Hamilton soundtrack. Yes. Nonstop. <laughs> if I need to cry. Literally if I need nonstop. To be inspired if I need. Yeah. Anything, it's so good. I just listen to that. Um, well, I'm excited. Do... I'm excited for it to come to Chicago so you guys can see it. Yeah. We have tickets. We, oh, we got our tickets really early. Good. Um, the weirdest thing, just total side note, and then I'll get back to the other restorative things. Uh huh. But we got our tickets so early that we were only about four or five months pregnant when we got the tickets. Uh-huh. And so it was only after getting them that then Danny was like, huh, we're going to have to get a babysitter. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to have like a four-month-old and we're going to have to get a babysitter to go You're see Hamilton. Really planning ahead at this point. So weird. But yeah, otherwise... Um, Stephen King's On Writing and um, pretty much anything by Anne Lamont are books that I'll pick up and I've read them cover to cover many times but sometimes I'll just pick them up and open a random page and see if that's what I needed to to look at that day but I, I'm also a big believer much as I'm all about positive energy and like keeping it up I, I'm a big believer in the wine and wine like grab a bottle of wine and a good friend who's not going to judge you for saying all of the ugly downer depressive stuff that is eating away at you and just say it and I mean then make sure that everybody knows that what's said at the table stays at the table before you leave Mm -hmm. the table (laughs) yeah um but I do more and more I value especially that one-on-one connection whether it's with Danny or with um just a really good friend I don't do well in crowds when I'm down or struggling. Um, I do still make myself go see other people's shows, but I might scoot out pretty quickly if I'm feeling in a little bit of a stuck place myself. But yeah, and also just getting to hear, I mean, I think it's one of the things I love about this podcast, sort of voyeuristically, and also just because, you know, I love getting to hear you talk with people. Um, But hearing the other side and that reminder that it's not just you, like... I think I would actually feel pretty terrible if I just vented and vented to a friend who was then like, oh, that sounds terrible. Too Everything's great with me. Yeah, too bad it's easy for everyone else. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, only from afar do I know artists who aren't struggling. I don't know anyone close up who doesn't have their ups and downs. Do you have any recommendations of things that you've seen lately or friends projects that you want to shout out yeah although i mean i know you're the the plony recommendations all the, <laughs> this is good <laughs> this for chicago <laughs> listeners this is gold right but for their chicago listeners out there yeah i mean i've i've seen and done a lot of great stuff and even though it's you know it's funny we were talking earlier about getting stuck in the emerging phase and you know, readings and workshops. But one of the things that I do love going to as an audience member are readings and workshops. And I've seen some great new works in the past couple of months here. 
I'm trying to think of, I'm afraid to do specific shout outs only because then whoever I leave out, I'll feel so <laughs> terrible. So I'll just go a little bit more company by company and say that sure. if you're in Chicago and you have the opportunity um, to go to a new works reading, I highly recommend checking out whatever they're doing at stage left at the new colony and at, you know, Goodman and Steppenwolf and the bigger houses. Um, Broken Nose Theater does Bechtel Fest mm. and really tries to promote women's voices and I want to go to that test <laughs> uh, I'll actually be in Bechtel Fest this year I just finished my script for that that's awesome um, and there's also the Chicago inclusion project that's working to have more opportunities for trans actors and actors of color and voices not traditionally represented on stage both through new works and also through reimagining classic and established works and they've done some series of readings around that so yeah, there's just a lot of dynamism in the readings, and I love a great fully produced show, but there's something really exciting about feeling like you're in on the ground floor, yeah. and I think, yeah, having having been on the other side for a lot of readings <laughs> as a playwright, you also just feel like you are really doing a good deed by showing up yeah. to hear and participate in a talk back and be part of that workshop process. Be a willing audience member. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, if you're in Chicago... Look out for the stage left production of The Bottle Tree in October, right? Yeah, that'll be good. Well, thank you, Beth. Worth the trip. (laughs) My pleasure. I love you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. I'm Leah Walsh. More episodes are coming soon. Please look for us on Facebook and iTunes. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brendan Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.